the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, it's a topic that, to be honest with you, you know, from scholars and podcasts alike, I've never been like completely satisfied. There's no good YouTube channels out there that solve this issue. <laughs> Enter in the Catholic Brothers. So we're going to dive right into this thing, and we're going to describe what this council was like, where it was, who was there, and what it sounded like. Yeah, I agree with you. Even in some of the best uh, surveys out there on, on the history of early Christianity, like WHC Friends, The Rise of Christianity, mm. he only really dedicates a few paragraphs to the Jerusalem Council. And, and I think from a Catholic perspective, it, it deserves uh, uh, more of a treatment. Yeah, definitely. So let's dive right in. Mm -hmm. So let's set the scene. Where where is this? Yeah, I mean, you get the sense that it, it's it's also probably taking place at the upper room. Mm -hmm. you know, everybody's kind of gathered uh, in the early chapters of the Book of Acts in the upper room. Um, it's it's located in Jerusalem by tradition um, in the upper city of Jerusalem, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it seems like they're gathering there because that room can hold up to 120 people. We hear from the Book of Acts. It's not yes. a small room. Yes. Um, and it's a richer area of Jerusalem, which means there's bigger buildings, bigger, bigger villas, perhaps people's houses where they could gather that kind of um, group of people. Yeah. So if people can just picture this then. So if you're looking at Jerusalem, let's say, let's say we're standing on the pinnacle of the temple. Okay, where Jesus actually was tempted by Satan. <laughs> so, so we're facing west. Yeah, we're standing on the pinnacle. We're looking at the temple, right? If you just pan left, <laughs> you'll see the upper city, and it's on the mm -hmm. same elevation as the temple. So this is Mount Zion. Okay, this this is what's considered Mount Zion, um, and like we said before, this is near David's tomb. Yeah. Um, so the upper city, like you said, is the wealthy area. This is where all the priests live. So Caiaphas's own house, his own residence, is like a stone's throw away from this this site. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you so then if you pan further left, right now you're looking at like the lower city, okay, and this is more like the common common people of Jerusalem are living. And then just outside the walls, you have two valleys that that loop around the city back towards the temple, and that and then just literally directly in front of the temple is where you have the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, okay. So that's sort of what the what the whole thing looks like. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, like you said, this is going to be of a, a wealthy villa, right? But what's interesting is that reports, early reports archaeologically, say that there was a, a building that was built adjacent to this villa in the late first century, so after the destruction of mm -hmm. the temple in Jerusalem. Yep. And it resembles a synagogue, right? Because there's a there's like a yeah, niche. Yeah, there, there right? is a niche in the in this assembly hall, and usually that's where the Jews would put the Torah, right? Mm -hmm. That's the Torah niche. Um, but what's interesting about this ancient synagogue is that the niche does not point towards the temple, where you would expect it to point toward. If it's a Jewish synagogue. If it's a right, Jewish yeah. synagogue. It doesn't point toward the east, where would like you a expect <laughs> a Christian church. It points almost north to Golgotha. Yeah. And so this is why scholars will say that this structure was not just a synagogue, but a Jewish Christian synagogue. Exactly. And you, and you see, you see what makes it even more compelling is like even in John's gospel, where when they enter the tomb, and there's a description of what they see, and they see two angels sitting, mm -hmm. right? Almost like the mercy seat. Like a mercy seat or an altar, <laughs> right. yeah. So you can see that there was this early, maybe Jewish-Christian association of Golgotha with a new Temple Mount in a way. Right? Yeah, right. Like you said, because it's parallel to the Temple Mount. This Mount Zion is the is the Davidic, a messianic mountain. Mm -hmm. So then later on, what we see is that when you look at the layers, about three inches on top of that is the Byzantine church uh, yeah. that was built on top of it with a mosaic floor. And then eventually the Crusaders come and they build their own structures around but this it. But is, this is why we know this site was significant to the earliest Christians, because right. you have this history of archaeological transmission. That's right. So we left off the last episode talking about how there was this confrontation at Antioch 
and 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 all three apostles, premier apostles are really named in this, right? Peter, James, um, and Paul, John. and yeah, and and John, John right? Because yeah. he's in Jerusalem with with James. Mm-hmm. So you have this uh, this clashing of heads. So they descend upon Jerusalem. Who who's there at at the, at the council? Yeah, so it says that the apostles and the presbyters all gathered. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the sect of the Pharisees, the believing Pharisees who are there. Yeah. Of course, the pillars of the Jerusalem church are there. So James, Peter, and John, and, and in that order. James right. is the leader of the Jerusalem church. Um, Peter is the premier apostle, but he's a missionary. He's mm-hmm. not in Jerusalem all the time. Mm-hmm. And then you have John, the, the son of Zebedee, yeah. one of the early apostles. And beyond them, you probably have Jesus' other family members, right? Mm-hmm. So um, Jude, the brother of Jesus, is probably there. Um, uh, Simon is probably there. You have the other apostles, the ones that aren't out missionizing. Barnabas is there. Yeah, Barnabas is there. Uh, maybe you have um, Joseph Arimathea. Maybe he's still alive and he's, yeah. he's at this council. Mm-hmm. Nicodemus is maybe there. By tradition, those, those two um, preeminent uh, Jewish Pharisees and, mm-hmm. um, were, were believers by tradition. So it's kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting. It makes you wonder, you know, is this sort of like a parallel Sanhedrin in a way, right? <laughs> because yeah. you have a lot of priests. I mean, yeah, even, even Barnabas is a Levite, you know? You do. And, and if we had to guess, maybe, maybe you put the number at 70, right? Yeah. Like, like the Sanhedrin. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a Christian. Sanhedrin, um, and it is, and that's the thing about the Jerusalem church. It is hierarchical. Yeah, not all the churches throughout the Mediterranean right away take that structure, but Jerusalem does. That's right. Yeah, and James is sort of this premier figure, mm-hmm. um, the towering figure. Yeah, and he's not a missionary, and he's not running yeah. around out there. Like no, he he's the pastor stationed. of this church. That's yeah. right. So, the order of events. Right, so the first thing that happens, right? So, so Paul, <laughs> Paul's gathering some ammo as he comes into the city. <laughs> so, yeah, so Paul, the first thing that Paul does, I love this. It actually says that the first thing he did was he passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. So you can tell he's building up steam yeah. <laughs> as he gets into Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. But he arrives, and it says that he's welcomed. He's and greeted he, by the apostles. He's mm-hmm. greeted by the elders, and he begins to relate to them the success that he's having among the Gentiles. All these Gentiles converting. To the faith, and again, right. we're the year here is 48, 49, 50, probably forty nine fifty. Yeah, um, so we're looking at what fifteen years or so after the resurrection of Christ. Mm-hmm. So there's been fifteen years of growth. Yeah, outside of Jerusalem in, in the Mediterranean. And just for reference for people, for like if you're reading through the New Testament or whatever, like Galatians is probably written just before this council, right? Forty eight, forty nine. Mm-hmm. I mean, we agree with scholars who date it earlier. Forty eight, forty nine. That's right. So, so Paul, Paul and Barnabas, right? They're relating what happened. They're really excited, just like any any evangelical missionary would be, right? Just really like this was a, an amazing thing. The Gentiles are coming in. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Very encouraging. You could sort of sense, right? You could sort of sense that at that moment, uh, a James would be like, "Okay, guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now that's great, but tone it down. We're here to talk about something because else. Yeah. we've got a problem." Yeah. yeah, and so this is where you see the Pharisees, um, the Christian Pharisees, kind of stand up and say. Yeah, okay, that's that's probably awesome, but they need to be circumcised. Right. They need to observe the law of Moses. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the it's kind of the buzzkill. I I think that's the moment that we can really say that the the council, quote unquote, really begins, mm-hmm. right? Because the the Pharisees stand up and they really set the premise. Yeah. And and that's and they're you know, we these aren't the Pharisees of the gospels. We're right. used to we're used to equating the term Pharisee with hypocrite, right? right? Jesus calling out the hypocrites and the Pharisees. And Pharisees has kind of taken on this kind of um, negative connotation. Yeah. Pharisee, the word itself just means a sect, just a party. Sect, a party. Yeah. Um, so we need to think about that. These, yeah. these are believers in Christ. Mm-hmm. And we have to realize that they have their own mission. 
That's right. In Jerusalem. And there's probably Gentiles that they've converted. Exactly. Right? They've already preached to a certain subset of Gentiles yeah. and have required circumcision mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. I mean, there are people who literally went through the painful and excruciating experience of circumcision to be a As part adults. of this Christian, <laughs> this Nazarene sect. Yeah. And here yeah. is Paul running out there and saying, you don't have to be circumcised. Yeah. And so you can imagine that as pastors themselves, as, as, as shepherds of a flock, their flock is coming to them well, and saying, dude. Yeah. And, and not only that, you know, they could see, you know, Paul's big message is, oh, your fellow heirs to the kingdom. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're equals with the, with the Jerusalem Christians, with the saints in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Well, the Pharisees are probably saying the same thing. Yeah, you are fellow heirs, so so be circumcised with us. Yeah, so yeah. that's probably what they're saying, right? Yeah, that's their argument. Yeah, so and we need to we need to kind of see and sympathize with that. Yeah, uh, they have their own people to look after. Yeah, and and you should see it as look, they're they're genuinely ministering to somebody, and Paul is disrupting that ministry. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's yeah. the flip side of this. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so then the next thing that it says in the text is that there is much debate. Okay, and then very quickly Luke moves to, and then Peter's like, okay, but let's stop for a second. Yeah, there was much debate. This was a very contentious. Yeah, I wish I was a fly on the wall, or I wish Luke would have given us more details on what was being said back and forth. But that's the position, right? We we can imagine Paul speaking his mind. We've talked about his position, yeah. and we can see the Pharisees speaking speaking their mind. You know, in Paul's letter to the to the Galatians leading up to this council, that's when he's saying, like, I hope, I wish they would just castrate themselves. So you can mm-hmm. see that that's. That could have possibly been how bad it got in this mm-hmm. moment of tension. Mm-hmm. You know that Paul might have said something that was a little bit like it's too much. You know the Pharisees are getting mad about it. Okay, but so, well, but 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 also it's kind of an intra-Pharisaic debate. Yeah, we forget that Saint Paul is a Pharisee. Yeah, he tells us he was a Pharisee. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee. Mm-hmm. I, I learned it. I learned under Gamaliel. Yeah. Right. So. You have the sect, the Pharisees speaking their mind, and Paul, the Pharisee, speaking his mind. So it's it's really that kind of debate. Yeah. And I can kind of see James and Peter in the middle of this. Yes, exactly, and, and feeling the tension of it. Mm-hmm. And and Peter, what, what's great about this is that it says there was much debate. I could just see Peter. It doesn't. It, it, it clearly is is the fact that Peter's not t- taking part in this yet. Mm-hmm. He's clearly not taking part in this because it, because it says then Peter stood up. Right. And it's a it's a turning point yeah. in the council. <laughs> so Peter is sitting there and, and considering and listening, as is James. They're listening to what's going on. Mm-hmm. But that's the next part. So the next part is that Peter stands up. Yes, he does. And it gets quiet. And Peter's <laughs> going to give his, basically what turns out to be the decision. Mm-hmm. And his argument is that, he, he, said, he appeals to them, brethren, God has acted here mm-hmm. without circumcision. So the Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit just like we did. Yeah. And let me get the quick background then on that. That's a great point because you're saying that, that Peter witnessed it himself with Cornelius. Yeah. So let, let's go, let's go back to that for a second. Peter had a vision. He's up praying, right? At, mm-hmm. at one of the prayer hours on a rooftop, he has a vision given to him and it's a bunch of animals in a sheet and it says, Peter, kill and it's eat. It's a weird vision. Yeah. And the animals are all the unclean animals. It says, Peter, kill and eat. Mm-hmm. And then Peter's like, no way. I'm a Jew. I've never done it. And he, and he says, no longer call unclean what I have deemed clean. Mm-hmm. Now, nothing in that vision, right, would lead you to believe that that has anything to do with Gentiles. But it would have something to do with like, okay, maybe God is telling us not to follow the, you know, the dietary laws anymore yeah. as Jews, right? Mm-hmm. Peter, by his own interpretive, interpretive authority, <laughs> yeah. but, but he himself applies that vision to And I'll tell you why. And I'll tell you why. Because it has to do with cleanliness and uncleanness. Right. What Peter is saying here is that God has already made clean the Gentiles. He has, quote from the council, 
purified their hearts yeah. by the Holy Spirit. He's made them clean already without circumcision. Mm-hmm. That's Peter's point. Yeah. And so what he is saying now to the Pharisaic group, Peter, he's saying, are you going to test God on this? Because mm-hmm. God has already made the decision that mm-hmm. they are blessed by the Holy Spirit and purified before circumcision. Yeah. So, so how is it that circumcision would be the purifier? Yeah. Because Peter sat there in the house of Cornelius and he watched uncircumcised peoples receive the Holy Spirit in the exact same way that the apostles yeah. received it on Pentecost. Mm-hmm. So it's like if they receive the Holy Spirit and they already are living the moral life, right? They're living the Jewish moral life. Why are you now going to lay on them the ceremonial and the civil laws that we never kept. That's right. That's right. And that's exactly what he says. Why are you laying on the burden that we ourselves don't even keep? And, he, and, and his final word is, or are you ready to tempt God? Mm-hmm. Are you trying to test God? Yeah. And what does it say? The entire assembly, it says, falls Fall silent. silent. Yeah. They knew they were caught. That's a powerful moment. Yeah. And then, and then you see Paul and Barnabas get up and, and begin. Now they feel like, okay, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. I know we had that tussle back in, back in Antioch, but I appreciate the backup here. Um, and then, you know, so then Paul and Barnabas feel a little more comfortable to then, I think, go back to what they were saying at the start of this yeah, whole thing and right. start relating all the miracles among the Gentiles. And I think what's at the root of this, personally, just looking at this, I, I think what's at the root of this whole debate is the fact that the Pharisaic uh, party of the Nazarenes is not making distinctions in the law. Paul clearly is. Mm-hmm. See, they're seeing like, so for instance, like for them, the hand washing and don't commit adultery are on like the same level because it's all the law. They're, they're following, they're being good Pharisees. Yeah. You take on circumcision, you take on the whole the law. law. Right. That's same, that St. Paul as a Pharisee would say, would teach that. And James says it. Yeah. James says that in his letter. So, so their position is that they don't, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's all the same. For Paul, Paul clearly sees a moral a moral distinction between do not commit adultery and don't wear before. don't wear linen, yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. or, or whatever. So yeah. Paul sees this distinction of of what will later in medieval theology will be known as the civil, the ceremonial, mm-hmm. and the moral parts of the law. And what he's probably relating here too about the Gentiles is that when the Holy Spirit came upon these people we've preached to, they began to live the law. Mm-hmm naturally by the spirit Mm -hmm. and so they are living purely you know uh unlike gentiles would that's right Mm -hmm. so after uh paul and barnabas relate their stories you know again in the backdrop of peter giving this sort of decision you you can imagine that everybody's starting to kind of like come on board now like okay wait that's that's a good point like we don't want to put god to the test the way Mm -hmm. that the the other pharisees did (laughs) right yeah but but the one figure who who hasn't spoken up yet is the actual pastor of this church Jimbo. He has Jim, <laughs> Jacob, Jam. So he, so James is. I can just see it watching all this and listening to all of this. Peter gives a decision. Paul comes back in, and James now is thinking, okay. I I agree with Peter, but I have a church to worry about. Mm-hmm. Practically, mm-hmm. you know, Peter's not always here. He's on mission, but I have to worry about my people here, the holy ones here in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And so now it's time for him to stand up. That's right. And, 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 and that's where you see the heart of James as, a, as just a good, righteous man. But you mm-hmm. also see his mind. James is no dummy, okay? And, and he finds this genius principle in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 10. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the principle for resident aliens in the land of Israel. And he says, boom, there it is. 
The Gentiles, who are uncircumcised among us, but who have been baptized. They're like resident aliens living in the land of Israel. And so then all they have to do is follow certain parts of the law. They don't have to be circumcised, but they have to follow certain parts of the law. What are those certain parts of the law then? So what's the decision? Verse 19 of chapter 15 of Acts says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols. So certain foods, right? Usually meats, yep. That's right. Um, and from sexual immorality. So again, remember that whole thing we said in a previous episode about all those things the Gentiles do. <laughs> like from Just from, don't do it. Exactly. Any any Gentile sexual activity, no. This They have to adopt the, the Jewish sexual code. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to abstain from things strangled and from blood. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the principle. It's the Leviticus principle for resident aliens. And we can sort of consider this to be like the canons, right, uh, of this mm-hmm. of this quote unquote council, right? Yeah, how we're, yeah, how it's practically going to be lived out. Yeah, so James is almost like the first canonist, right? <laughs> um, now, this is what this is my own personal my own personal opinion. Okay, here we go, here we go. So I see Paul walking away from this council, saying, "I'll hedge my bets. I'm not happy that James did that." I'm not happy that James did that. I'll take it though because I got what I want. I, what I wanted out of this council, what we all really wanted, me and Barnabas, and and, and everything we sacrificed for out there and gotten beaten for. Like it's not in vain because number one, I got the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised, right? And that baptism makes them full participatory members in table fellowship in the church. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he's happy with that. Mm-hmm. What he's probably rolling his eyes at is this idea of treating the Gentiles still though as like kind of second-class citizens in a way that they're resident yeah, aliens. I could, I could see that. Yep. You know? Mm-hmm. And in fact, if you um, if you look at Ephesians, I'll, I'll just turn right to it. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, starting at verse 11 and going to the end of the chapter, I would really highly encourage people to go read that because in, in my view, that is Paul's commentary on James's canons of the council. Because in there, he actually starts saying that you're not aliens. You're not resident aliens. You who were far off have now been brought near in the blood of Christ. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down in the flesh of Christ. Christ. Now think about this. In the temple, there was an actual dividing wall. Like we said before, there was a dividing wall. And on that wall was was written, if you Gentiles pass this point, you will be stoned. (laughs) The wall of hostility. Literally, there was a wall of hostility in the temple. He's saying that has been broken down. And he actually says to them, he says, so then, this is verse 19 of chapter 2. So then. You are no longer strangers and aliens, <laughs> but you are fellow citizens with the saints in Jerusalem, and you are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Yep, and that's the message he takes throughout the, the Mediterranean. So he sees James as sort of living in this, and again, I mean, he well, probably loves James. I'm just saying, like he he sees James as sort of James is, is in this Jerusalem bubble. He's having these intra-Jewish debates. Paul's out there, man. Like he's seeing things happen in yeah. the field, right? Yeah, and you can understand that. Yeah. absolutely. So, and the other thing is that when Paul's writing this letter, he's in Rome in AD sixty, the letter to the Ephesians, right? So this is Paul is in Rome in prison. I want people to realize this that that Paul never was really fully accepted by by everybody. He was hated by a lot of people, even all the way to the end, doubting his apostleship. Yeah, in every letter, there's people doubting his apostleship. Um, and and we'll get, we'll get into it in future episodes. I know we will. Paul's view on things didn't quite win out in the first 
two centuries right. or so of the church. That's right. Um, it still struggles through as you move to the third and fourth centuries. There's great um, Jewish Christian traditions from the second century who are still very much anti-Paul. Mm-hmm. We have writings that are anti-Paul mm-hmm. and more pro-James. Yeah. Um, and that riff, maybe it was from the beginning, maybe it was reinvented in the second century, but it's there that Paul wasn't trusted by all all Jewish Christians. That's right. And and the Leviticus principle of the Council of Jerusalem continues. I mean, it, can, it yeah. continues to yeah. be practiced by Christians. Yeah, so so there's there's three reasons why Catholics in particular should focus in on this council. Yeah. Number one, it sets the precedent for how the church as one church will solve an issue. Yeah. Number two, it solves the issue. And number three, it is accepted. And that speaks to the authority of the council. So num- mm-hmm. number one, it sets the precedent. What is that precedent? Yeah. The how precedent does the church is, gather? Yeah, that's right. So it's the pattern of a synod. And then eventually you'll see in the fourth century that we see the first time an ecumenical council. But it starts this. But this, this one is ecumenical. You have you, it is yeah. in, in a way ecumenical. You have the Gentile missionaries coming to Jerusalem to meet. Everybody's mm-hmm. gathering here. This is the church. It's as ecumenical as yeah. it could be at the time. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So you have the gathering. Mm-hmm. They gather. There's an open debate. An open. Everyone's free to say what they're going to say. Then there's a decision. Right, and and that's usually followed by the losing party recanting what they had formerly believed. Yep. Right, then you have the canons. Those are the guardrails, right? Keeping, that's how we, so yeah. keeping this decision though from getting out of hand, right, or people taking it to to an extreme. No, no, no. But we need to keep it w- within the boundaries. Yeah. The canons. Then you have the implementation, the sending of emissaries. That's right. That that's the last part of this where they send out Paul yeah. and Barnabas. Now, okay, there's now a letter that's written. A letter is written of the decision the letter is sent out with emissaries with paul that's right and then you have finally the reception of the faithful and that happens here doesn't it i mean you don't really hear from this point forward you'll still hear like things about like whether you follow this part of the law or that part of the law but you don't hear about whether or not you need to be circumcised you know what i mean yeah you don't and that so that's the second point is that this council solves the issue um and you, that, that that debate you you do hear later in the New Testament about the Sabbath you know Christians mm-hmm. observing the Sabbath but the the debate about you must be circumcised begins to fade into the background and so mm-hmm. you know that that the council decision was authoritative for for um, for Christians and the letter itself says that it, it seemed it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. so there's already this principle that like you no know, literally God has spoken yeah well the, the precedent here is well Peter made the decision. And we know for Roman Catholics what that means. Yeah. You know, James comes up with the final canons of the council, but the actual meat of the decision was Peter's. He's the one who stood up and said, this is what it's going to be. And the church agrees with him. And so he says, us and the Holy Spirit. It seems good to, to us. I love that. And I remember I remember when we were, um, you know, in the Protestant world, I remember Protestant scholars always saying like, well, James is the one mm-hmm. who like makes this. No, he does not. Mm-hmm. He does not make the decision. He Peter makes a pastoral does. decision. Yeah. But but Peter is the decision on the issue at hand. That's right. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't want to just, again, I, I want to bring people to really look this in the face when Peter applies his vision to people instead of to food. That's a jump. That's a logical jump. And anybody could have called him on it and be like, yep. Peter, your vision, great, had nothing to do with Gentiles. Why are you applying it? But he does it anyway, and everyone falls silent. I mean, he, he is applying it to this situation. Yeah. Yep. And then and then finally, you, so that so that pattern, right, mm-hmm. it's significant because that, that whole pattern of how we get together and decide things, 
is the pattern of the church. <laughs> Literally. When you look at the seven ecumenical councils of the church, that's the pattern. And, the, and that pattern is set forth here right. uh, in the book of Acts at the Jerusalem Council. Mm-hmm. The final thing is, is reception. How is this received and how does mm-hmm. that speak to the authority? This was received. Yeah. We have uh, Tertullian of Carthage, the, the, the father of Latin Christianity, right, in the early third century, telling us in his apology that the Christians of his day follow the stipulations laid down here mm-hmm. in the canons. The Levitical principles, yeah. yeah. Uh, they don't eat blood from animals. They right. don't eat strangled animals. They, they keep sexual morality. He's listing out those things mm-hmm. that North African Christians still keep to his day. This is a majority Gentile church in the early third century already <laughs> telling us that they're still following this council. And it's great because he says that like even in their persecutions, he says that the... The Romans, you know, they would they would tempt us with blood sausages and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he says, so, but but they know that we don't. They know eat we that. don't do this. Yeah, very exactly. interesting. It is interesting. That's North Africa. You have um, documents in Eusebius, the church historian from the early fourth century, mm-hmm. tell us that the, the churches along the Rhone River Valley, so modern day France, all those churches kept the decrees of the Jerusalem Council. Mm-hmm. As far as far west as France, that's amazing. And, and these are again majority Gentile churches. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look in the Book of Revelation, the letter to the Church of Thyatira, it mentions in there that the Christians should be keeping the free from sexual immorality and no, nothing from um, animals, uh, the blood and the animals, mm-hmm. no eating of the blood. Mm-hmm. So, the point here being that these canons were accepted by the church. Yeah. Why, so that. much so that majority Gentile churches were still keeping it into the third and fourth centuries. Yeah. So just to then uh, set us up for our next episode, St. Paul has this interesting connection in, in his letter to the Colossians where he connects circumcision, the new circumcision, he says, without hands, and he connects it to baptism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very interesting. But, but you can see how it works in his mind because what he's saying is that what really matters here is that you are living the new life in Christ. You you are a new creation. And so Adam didn't have circumcision. And Christ is the new Adam. Right. And this is a new creation. We're mm-hmm. starting from zero again. Mm-hmm. And that's why circumcision is necessary, but baptism is. That's right. So the next episode, what we're going to do is really dive into baptism in the first century, starting from the apostles and going to the end of the first century, what did it look like? What did it entail? Um, and and we're gonna we're gonna get into a lot of the details. But for now, that my friends is the, is Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Council, Council. on YouTube. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>